This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored in part by the San Diego County Bar Association. As a nonprofit news organization, Voice of San Diego depends on our members, foundations, and sponsors to provide funding for the investigative journalism you expect from Voice of San Diego. The election of qualified judges is essential to our justice system. When you vote on March 3rd, you'll be able to choose from 11 candidates for judge running in four judicial races. For more than 40 years, the San Diego County Bar Association has provided evaluations of candidates running in contested judicial elections to help inform your decision. To view the evaluations for 2020, visit judgechoices.com. And if you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor, contact Julianne Marco at julianne at vosd.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. We begin the show with breaking news. We are now in a position to confirm a major development in the race to replace Representative Susan Davis in California's 53rd Congressional District. Rick Shea, that's right. San Diego Board of Education Vice President Rick Shea has waded into the race and into the tumultuous waters of all the competition going on to endorse Sarah Jacobs. Jacobs has emerged as a frontrunner in the race based on a poll conducted last week. Oh, whoa, hold on. I am hearing there is yet another major development in this race. Yes, Voice of San Diego can now confirm that San Marcos Councilman Randy Walton, Randy Walton, has made his own endorsement, in this case, for Janessa Goldbeck. developing story. We'll have more after the break. Yeah, we uh, decided to try our hand at a little little breaking news, a little professional anchoring. Yeah, that sense of urgency is all that's in my email inbox right now for <laughs> developments that maybe don't uh, warrant <laughs> the <laughs> intensity with which they're conveyed. <laughs> was an interesting first time for me when I saw siren emojis in my <laughs> Outlook inbox and then opened it up to see that it was for, for the old Randy Walton endorsement. <laughs> Randy Walton weighs in. It's good in. stuff, though. Okay. You know, I get it. You got to gotta get some attention on your campaign. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> Randy Walton weighs in on the big 53rd fun. Congressional District. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego here with my friend Andrew Keats, as always. He's the assistant editor. Hello. Hey. And Sarah Libby, managing editor. Hello. Hello. We have a lot to talk about today. We're entering an intense period for the campaign. The mayor's race, the 53rd congressional district, the measures, what we're watching for with basically two weeks to go. And that can't be true. Yeah. No. It's closer to three weeks than two as we sit here no. today. It's like a solid four or five months, I feel like. Do you? <laughs> Better get going. Uh, NBC, NBC, NBC has some new developments. NBC <laughs> has some new developments on City Attorney Mara Elliott's effort last year to weaken the state's public records law. We got some genuine jaw drops in the office uh, after what they revealed. 
check into that and explain everything about why we were interested in it. And there are three very different, completely different lawsuits that we found very interesting this week. We will run, run through those. There are only 18 more days until Super Tuesday. The mailers are flying. The Facebook ads are auto-playing. The TV is muting. We are particularly interested in three tight races. We have no idea how they're going to turn out. Let's go to them right now. First up, that one we talked about, the 53rd Congressional District. This is the race to replace Susan Davis, who announced her retirement last year. Council President Georgette Gomez jumped in right away. Uh, kind of seemed like, you know, had a lot lined up. Maybe she could be considered a favorite. Uh, then there was, of course, Sarah Jacobs, who ran in the 49th Congressional District, had a pretty strong showing there. And, uh, you know, as part of the Obama, Obama administration, uh, has a obviously very famous and, and influential grandfather. And Janessa Goldbeck are all vying for this. And then there was a poll last week. The Union Tribune and 10 News released a poll that I didn't talk to a single person who didn't reference this poll. It showed Democrat Sarah Jacobs. The person at the donut shop was just like... Do you see that 53rd poll? Yo, you Yo. see that 53rd poll, though? <laughs> okay, there were some people who didn't. But my little world was very interested in this one. Jacobs had a lead by a wide margin yeah, really in that big. race over two Republicans before it got down to Georgette Gomez and Janessa Goldbeck. Yeah, my, so my take on the poll last week was that I, I – Low info race, which I th- I think at this point this this still is, and with so many candidates, I'm willing to believe that there's like qu- quite large error bars on any sort of poll. But Jacobs was so far ahead that you have to basically believe that it's trash to not take something from it. It's not like she's up by five points; she was up by like twenty three points or something. Yeah, so we were uh, all interested in that because. If it does play out that way, that would mean that Georgette Gomez has a tough time advancing to the runoff. If it's even close to being accurate, she's got a lot of work to do to get into that runoff, especially if uh, one of the Republicans is able to consolidate. Now, look, it's not a Republican district, but there are Republicans. And if they can get the word out that they're a Republican, they can get you know 20 percent of the vote or something, 30 percent with everybody else in the race. That could mean I mean, there's so many people you could it's ostensibly advanced with like 13 percent. Yeah. So there uh, there's a really good shot that Georgette Gomez may not be able to make it through. And the consequences of that are just stunning to me. This is uh, an interesting time because all of these races will play on March 3rd, which will also be the primary for the presidential race in California. And Michael Bloomberg has been uh, working here for months. His team has been working here and spending money now for quite some time. And they've really wrapped up a lot of the workers, the actual on-the-ground campaign workers. And uh, that's causing an interesting ripple throughout all these campaigns, right? Yeah, so I had heard from someone that uh, there was this resource shortage that was not just uh, ad space but actual people. that had been sucked up basically by the Bloomberg campaign, um, went around and called some different campaigns and talked to one person who said that they had had uh, two or three different staffers plucked up by the Bloomberg campaign uh, who were paying them like twice as much money 
as that they could pay at the previous campaign. Um, I also, you know, I talked to some other people who said, yes, it is the Bloomberg campaign, but it's also just more generally no local campaigns here are accustomed to running their field campaigns during a contested presidential primary. So it's not just Bloomberg campaign, but all the presidential campaigns. And that was, for what it's worth, the take from uh, people with Bloomberg who said it is, you know, we've we they they said that their team is about forty five people in San Diego County alone. For con- that is nuts. For context, yeah, Elizabeth Warren's entire operation in Nevada is seventy people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I got you know press releases today about their Contra Costa County field <laughs> operations. Solana, Solana, Solana. like what? Yeah. Um, so now their their campaign was yeah their their campaign's take was yeah we've hired a lot of people but um, they think that it's mostly the case just that there's a lot of presidential campaigns doing a lot of different things and that is the where the competition for local campaigns is coming from. So we are going to be glued to see who makes it through the primary to the runoff for the 53rd congressional district. Our second race that we're paying attention to is the race for mayor. The UT also released a poll about that one recently. It showed Todd Gloria and Scott Sherman continuing to hold the top two spots in the race for mayor, which is a very interesting result. Sherman is five points in that poll above Councilwoman Barbara Bree, remember who was rather contemptuous of the idea that Sherman was competitive in this race. Uh, Bree's team is now taking it to Sherman. Again, this is a race to see who makes it to the runoff. And so if Sherman and and Bree are are trying for that spot against Gloria, this is what it looks like. Bree's team is, is really fighting. They jumped on our reporting that Sherman was getting support from the ghost of Soccer City, that's right, Nick Stone, who was the public face of Soccer City, that effort to redevelop the Qualcomm Stadium site. He gave $10,000 to the Republican Party of San Diego County because he supports Councilman Scott Sherman for mayor. Now the Republican Party can spend that money how it pleases, but also one of their top priorities is Sherman for mayor. Stone was the face of uh, that entire effort, and that triggered... Barbara Bree's husband, Neil Centuria, he's back. He put out one of his classic emails. He said, quote, look, my bride is a Harvard MBA. He's sticking with the my bride thing. Yeah, it's back. It's back. She knows her numbers and finance. She reads the perspectives. She doesn't just hold her finger in the air, check the way the wind is blowing, and then hit yes button. And so then he goes on. He says, let's ask who is financing mayoral candidate Scott Sherman. Lo and behold, Soccer City's Nick Stone, these guys are clever. And he goes on and he actually makes the case that he thinks that they want to get Sherman elected. Or no, sorry, they want to get Bree out and get Todd Glory elected because Sherman can't compete in order to bring Soccer City back and derail the whole SDSU West effort. That would be a Which, dope campaign is, development I would love to cool. cover, frankly, as may, a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a thing that's happening. Uh, I don't know. They're, that would be hard if they sell the land to SDSU, which is my understanding of what's happening right now. It might also be a surprise to prominent Todd Gloria supporter Jack McGrory, yeah. who was the face of SDSU West right. against Nick Stone. Uh, might have to ask him for that. Bree... Also just gave her campaign $60,000. No, not a loan, actual contribution. Yeah. She's spending it to, uh, this is real. This is a fight. Yeah. And I should add one other piece of uh, financial news in this race. So 
Nick Stone gives ten thousand dollars to Scott Sherman. Barbara gives sixty thousand dollars to herself. Uh, I do not have a dollar figure, but I did talk to Will Rodriguez Kennedy, chair of the Democratic Party yesterday, who confirmed to me that the party uh, has a lot of money, has a lot of resources to go around, and they are ready and fully intend to start spending it on Todd Gloria between now and March. Um, I asked if there was any part of him that, even though they endorsed Gloria over Bree, uh, whether there was any part of him that would consider staying out of the race for now or uh, would hope to get Gloria and Bree through, which would at the very least mean a Democrat was going to be the next mayor. Uh, and he basically said, no, uh, we endorsed Todd when we made the decision to endorse him. That was the decision in the race. And so we're going to spend on his behalf and we're not looking at the polling right now. All we're, all we're doing is it is making a simple decision that, uh, we have an endorsed candidate, and he's got an election in a month, so we're going to start, sp- and we have money to spend, so that's what we're going to do. The third race that we are very interested in is the race about Measure C. We talked about it last week a little bit. This is the ballot measure that would increase hotel room taxes to expand the convention center fund, homeless services, and road repairs. Lisa Halberstadt has some things on our website to help you understand both the uh, questions some people have about how the homeless money will be spent, but also now about some of the economics of the deal and uh, of the convention center promise itself. There was an, also a poll in the UT about this one. It showed 61% of the voters who responded support the measure, 21% oppose, and there was a big gap there of uncertain voters. And the face, and as described by some people who tweeted and talked about this, it looked like a lot of support for the measure, and yes, it is. However, the way taxes work in San Diego and in California, you need two-thirds of the vote to support it, and that's a long way off from two-thirds. And things don't usually get better at this point. It's only 18 days till the election. Uh, You made that point, Andy. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this was everyone... When I was covering Measure A back in 2016, in the early days, well before ballots went out, everybody was telling me that you needed to be in excess of 66% before the campaign started because you only went down, you never went up. Yeah. Now. Uh, they got what, 57, 56? Yeah. And so maybe maybe that's not true. Now people this, say things about politics all the time that are not right, and maybe those people are doing that in this case. But. Now this was set up as a citizen's initiative for a reason. Remember all the hassle they went through, all the money they raised to get it on the ballot as a citizen's initiative was for only one purpose. And that was the theory that maybe, just maybe, a court would let this go into law and raise the tax with just a bare majority of support of voters uh, based on a theory we're not going to try to explain here. But it's a theory. And a court has not yet, or the Supreme Court has not yet clarified that citizens' initiatives can indeed raise taxes with just a majority support from voters. And so uh, if this gets more than 50, I do anticipate them taking it to court and trying to get it uh, validated. So I have not seen any uh, proponents of the measure say, hey, you know, keep in mind, we're, we're well above 50. Do you think that's just because there's no there's no profit in saying that now. Yeah, what's the point? What's like the point? they, they yeah. want as many people to rally for it as possible. If they do get two thirds, they don't have to worry about it. Uh, it's still going to get legally challenged, I think, from other angles, and so they'd probably rather write that off.
All right, switching gears, our media partners at NBC7 San Diego just reported that San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott's chief of staff, Jerry Braun, asked Senator Ben Hueso's office to delete emails that were sent during a 2019 effort to weaken the state's public records law. All right, Sarah, dial this back a little bit. Let's go from the beginning. What's the law we're talking about? All right, so this was a law... um, that would add a few provisions and steps that would effectively stop people from enforcing violations of the Public Records Act. Right now, if you think an agency has withheld or redacted emails in some way inappropriately, um, you can go to court. And you can't win a bunch of money if you prove that they were in the wrong, but you can recoup like your attorney's fees. And that's all there is. There's yeah. no... Not teeth just to the law. Otherwise. Yeah, not just emails. We're talking about any public record. Yes. If you ask for it, it's it's the only consequence they have for not giving it to you is that they might have to pay your attorney's fees for forcing them to. Right. All right. And so this her, the law that she proposed with State Senator Ben Wayso would have done what? It would have required a number of things to happen before you could take an agency to court. And it also would have made the burden much harder on the public to prove that they withheld something willfully or maliciously. So it, in effect, there would be no scenario virtually in which you could meet the bar they were proposing in order to get these fees back, which would, in essence, mean that they could just withhold records with impunity. Yeah, and so this obviously freaked us out because that's the only enforcement mechanism people like us or any citizen Anyone. could use to to compel a government agency to give up records that you know exist, right? Yes. Okay, so now we always kind of wondered what was at the heart of this. Was this Ben Hueso's idea? It sounds like it was probably Mara Elliott, the San Diego City Attorney's idea. And then what did we learn? So when I first heard about this bill last year, I called up Hueso's office and I said, hey, what's the deal with this bill? I'm trying to get some information about it. And somebody just very casually and flippantly said, oh, that's the city attorney's bill. You have to ask them about it. They asked us to do it. So we're doing it. And so that was really the first time anyone knew that that was the real effort behind this uh, was the city attorney's office and not Hueso himself. Um, And so once we revealed that, uh, a lot of dominoes fell. If you remember, the city council was very upset and said, we had no idea this was happening. We don't support this effort. Um, And they were upset about it. And Ben Wayso immediately, you know, after a couple weeks, uh, clawed the bill back. And he just said, never mind, I'm not going through with it. It didn't even get a single hearing. So it really didn't go far at all. Yeah. And as soon as this news came out, uh, this gets very meta because it's, a bill to deal with public records requests. Uh, Corey Briggs files a public records request seeking um, all the correspondence between Ben Weso's office and the city attorney's office. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have now. Yes. So it wasn't until after that request from Briggs came in that Jerry Braun sent uh, or made a call to Ben Weso's office and said, hey, in the course of trying to get you to do this bill, I sent you a bunch of information. I sent you a bunch of emails. One of those emails you need to delete. You need to just forget it ever happened. Don't look at it. Don't read it. Delete it. And that would mean, of course, that they couldn't include it in this public records request from Corey Briggs. Now, aren't state lawmakers exempt from the Public Records Act? 
They are, but Mara Elliott's office is not. Right. And so if they correspond with somebody who, you know, is required to comply with the law. Got it. So Briggs doesn't get this email in his request. Somehow he knows that it exists anyway, and that allows him to go to court to say, hey, you didn't give me everything. And in the course of that lawsuit, he deposed uh, Jerry Braun and members of Hueso's staff, which is, you know, basically interviewing them under oath. Pause there for a second. Let's explain. Jerry Braun is a former journalist at the Union Tribune. He left journalism, become a, an active or an active member of the staff of Jerry Sanders, former mayor, later worked for the city attorney's office under Jan Goldsmith had a bunch of other flings and, and issues <laughs> that he tried to push. But then he ended up as Mara Elliott's chief of staff. He is not a lawyer, but he is a top manager at the San Diego City Attorney's Office and a notoriously political individual. Yeah, he's tried to argue in the past that he shouldn't have to disclose certain things to the public because of the attorney-client privilege, which has always been very strange given that he's not an attorney. Right. So once again, he's saying, delete this information because of privilege, confidential information. And he's not an attorney who's presumably in a position to make those determinations. What did the email say? So this was an email. Hueso's office was considering this bill and they reached out to Elliot's office and said, you know, we have to justify to the public why a bill like this is needed. Can you send us some information about why the public would need, you know, to make a change like this. And so Jerry Braun sends a bunch of correspondence from another attorney in the office that has some information in it um, about a court case that sort of deals with this issue. And it also mentions, well, this would put a stop to people like Corey Briggs. By name. Mentions him by name. Yes. And that is the email that they then after Briggs put in that request, said, hey, you're going to want to go ahead and delete that. Yes. Fascinating. All right, we're going to take a quick break. On the second half of the show, we're going to go over those three lawsuits that we've been keeping an eye on. The Happy Half Hour is a fun food and drink podcast brought to you by the editors of San Diego Magazine and food critic Troy Johnson. Learn about San Diego's food scene with news about restaurant openings and closings and discussions about what's happening in the culinary world. Get to know a local chef, restaurateur, or farmer each week and find your perfect affordable date night with the regular segment, Two People, 50 Bucks. Subscribe to Happy Half Hour wherever you listen to podcasts or visit sdmag.com slash happy. We are back. There are three lawsuits that have caught our eyes this week. We wanted to run through them. Lawsuit number one, the controversial law AB5 restricts how companies can use independent contractors in place of employees. Of course, came about because of court ruling called Dynamex. Now, city attorney of San Diego, we just talked about her, Mara Elliott, is using Dynamex to sue the grocery delivery app called Instacart. I didn't know what Instacart was, but Sarah did. I I do. They, I see them at the grocery store. They uh, It's an app. They send people to the grocery store for you and, and pay them for doing it. She says the company's delivery drivers, they're called shoppers. 
That's right. Our, For the purpose of this lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> it led to some confusion. Yeah. So Elliot says those delivery drivers are what makes the company's success possible, but they're not even getting a guaranteed minimum wage. She tried to actually halt the company's activities with a restraining order. The judge did not give her that, but she, the case is still ongoing. Instacart, for its part, says, on the one hand, it's just a software platform that these drivers are using. They're not right. the drivers, aren't the workers. But then they also claim that the drivers signed arbitration agreements, and thus it's a matter for them to work out in a private setting if they have a problem with the company and not for the city attorney to be involved with in court. Yeah, all that's pretty much true. So there is another hearing on the temporary restraining order on Friday. So I suppose there's a shred of a chance that maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, the Instacart could be shut down. Um, But the judge uh, was very reluctant uh, in some of those earlier hearings to do that and declined when he had one chance. So it seems like that's not going to happen. He had some interesting comments, too. We've dealt with him before. This is Tim Taylor. Yes. Who had some major rulings about, what, like, sandags, like... Closet, the Plaza, Plaza of Panama. Panama oh, yeah. Uh, sandag RTP, yeah. yeah. So... the third one. There had to have been a third one because we wrote a story about him and we would have been breaking a rule if there wasn't a third one. Yeah. All I remember is that we called him Tim the Judge Man Taylor yeah. after yes. the home improvement character, which I stand by. Yeah, All I remember good. is that he began his Sandag RTP ruling with a lengthy, lengthy diatribe into the cuts, the budget cuts that had befallen the, uh, the court, court system, system yeah. which he referred to as Brog- Brogdagnegian is a reference to a nation of giants in Gulliver's Travels, I believe. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's Tim that's Taylor. Tim the guy. <laughs> All right. What did he say? So if you remember Dynamex or Dynamics, which a lawyer used with me this week, which kind of had me shook. Yeah. So is. I'm going to keep saying Dynamex. Uh, it laid out this three-part test, if you remember, to determine uh, whether somebody should be labeled an employee or not. And so Mara Elliott's office is arguing that on all three counts, Instacart fails. Um, You know, they are doing work at the direction of Instacart, that the work that they're doing is highly regulated. They're they're training them. They're telling them what routes to take in the grocery store. And they're giving them, you know, perks based on whether they adhere to a certain number of hours. She's saying- It's not like a dating website where they're like, facilitating a connection of people that can go do whatever they want. Like they're facilitating a connection of people and then saying exactly how it should be carried out. Yes. So that's one test. So let me interrupt here. The case that Instacart is making that they are a tech platform that is just connecting people is the same one that to some extent that Uber and Lyft have made in defense of AB5 or in response, in response to AB5. Would that, case be strengthened if they could demonstrate that their valuation as a company is not reliant on their profitability from their day-to-day business connecting people to buy groceries, but in some sort of exit where they're selling their technology to some other company that could use it for any number of purposes? Like if you could say, look, we like we have a market cap of X and the reason is not because of how much money we're making sending these people to the store to buy applesauce. It's because 
investors recognize that we've built a robust platform that has a litany of applications just waiting for creative people to start using them. I don't know that anybody's made that argument. Uh, one thing I found very compelling uh, were Mara Elliott's office pulled out some of the training materials that are given to the Instacart shoppers and they tell them, you are the reason our business is a success. You are the face of the company. Without you, we're just this grocery website. And with you, we are a grocery delivery service. And so she's saying, you know, they're the company itself is making the case that they're a very integral part of the mm -hmm. business. And so Instacart, you know, refutes all those points. And then, like you said, Scott, they're making this separate argument that even if they were guilty of a litany of things, it wouldn't matter because all of their drivers agreed to settle any disputes with the company in arbitration, which is this private court system that's separate from the courts. And which Lorraine Gonzalez has also attacked. Yes, she actually wrote a law banning it, and that is separately being sued over. So this is all. Do you think the Instacart lawyers had a, a good laugh about that? Probably. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. All right. Lawsuit number two. In 2018, the Port of San Diego began adding $3.50 to every rental car deal at the airport. Now, a New Mexico man has filed a class action lawsuit. You see, a court already ruled that the fee was illegal. Fees are supposed to be used to benefit the people who pay them. Like, you pay a fee for a dock, and the dock needs to be built. Uh, but if you pay a fee that is used by people to do something else somewhere else, that's a tax. And if you try to pass a tax, voters must approve that tax, often at a two-thirds vote threshold. The port's already collected $7.3 million on this fee. They were using it to build, what was it, uh, something in South Bay, right? Yeah, a, a parking garage to serve the convention center that they're building as part of the Chula Vista waterfront development. Right. So they've collected $7.3 million from this fee. A lawsuit like this means they might have to give it all back. Which I don't even know how you do. I mean, like it's the... It'd be one of those things like, did you, you'd send out a yeah. thing to everybody yes. who rented a car saying, like, did you rent from this period that you can get your $3.50? Like that 75 cents I got from Ticketmaster 12 years ago? Yeah, exactly. Like, and the lawyer is the guy or the, or the lady who's going to really pocket that because they'll get, what, 30% of 7.3 million, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Lawsuit number three. We used to do a lot of reporting on SeaWorld and the apparent fallout from the movie Blackfish. The documentary was obviously brutal, and it played over and over again on CNN and, and cable for like a year. SeaWorld is a big deal in San Diego, pays the city a significant amount of rent every year. It became an interesting thing for us to follow and dig into. Lisa Halberstadt uh, pursued it for a few months. The company, though, constantly denied that the movie had hurt its business. Not just the, the company. In this case crucially the company but also yeah anyone in town who it is a cheerleader of sorts for major businesses was vehemently denied the idea that this movie had any relevance right in march 2014 for example uh, the, unless the, when they wanted to talk bad about the movie in which case it was all lies and propaganda and right. it was disgusting <laughs> In march 2014 the company's ceo claimed that the movie quote had no effect on our business a month later, the company revealed, this is my favorite one, that its attendance fell 13%. That the SeaWorld 
had prepped investors for that news. They claimed uh, that the fall in attendance was due to Easter falling later in the month than usual. Yeah. So it was sure. literally Jesus's problem. <laughs> yeah. Now the company's spokesman at that time was named Jacobs. He said he acknowledged now that they were lies. All yeah. of those things were lies at the behest of the company CEO at the time, Atchison. Yeah, he said he said those things for the purpose of lying and being a liar. Yeah. Lying as a is part what he of wanted a, to do. A plan to lie. to lie. Now, SeaWorld has agreed to pay $65 million to settle a lawsuit claiming that it lied to investors. Stipulated as part of that settlement, they have not admitted any wrongdoing. Okay. <laughs> But it is in the deposition where they said, like, well, I I did that to to lie. Can I just say that this is yet another major data point? You've earned this one. I'll let, I, I, you know, your honor, the defense rests on this one. Go ahead. Thank you. (laughs) This is another major data point in the whole discussion about it's better to be honest about your vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. than to pretend that they don't exist and to, you know, just attack people who say, maybe we should talk about your vulnerabilities. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it never works out. It's always bad. I feel like people aren't going to do that, man. Yeah. Look at Sandeg. <laughs> someday, someday we'll have this conversation about the school district. All of oh, these. I, don't, I mean, how many things are we covering right now where people are, <laughs> are doing this whole thing? They're all like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You Voice guys are the assholes. An idiot. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. The the single most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this area of downtown San Diego. If you love the podcast, be sure to check out the Facebook group. Just search for Voice of San Diego Podcast on Facebook. Be sure to check out our newsletters, too. Andy and I do the politics report each week. Sarah wraps up the entire week with her Sunday newsletter, What We Learned This Week. Get all those at voiceofsandiego.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor-chief, and Keith's assistant editor. Sarah Libby's managing editor. This show is produced by Nate, John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes and recorded in the Voice of San Diego podcast studio in this part of downtown. Sponsored by Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. Thank you, Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.